There's a great supernatural warfare that is raging in this universe that we live in. So I want you to see how the Apostle Paul has described spiritual warfare here for us in Hebrews, not Hebrews, Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 11. He says it this way, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So notice there's a warfare going on here. We're we're not on a playground, we're on a battleground, and the warfare is between God and his angels, and then Satan and his angels, who are now demons. And so because Christians belong to God, then, then as a result of that, we are now drawn into this warfare, into the spiritual conflict, as they are attacked by various schemes of the devil. And so God's enemy then becomes your enemy if you're a Christian. That's that's how this works. And so this is the supernatural enemy, may I remind you, who rebelled against God in God's own heaven. This is the one who succeeded in luring man from innocence to sin right there in paradise in the Garden of Eden. This is the one who repeatedly tried to destroy God's chosen people, Israel, This is the enemy who tried to stop the birth of Christ, the one who tried to destroy the ministry of Christ and tried to stop the resurrection of Christ. This is the enemy of unequaled wickedness. And so because, as verse 12 says, there's this struggle going on, and it's not against flesh and blood, but the Christian cannot fight it in the power of his own strength. You can't fight it in your own flesh and blood. It is, first of all, God's battle, and it can be fought only in God's power using God's armor that He gives to us. However, having said that, we come now to verse 14 in the text, and it actually begins with a command. It's imperative in the original language, and it said, notice verse 14 starts with the word stand. Stand. And then as we're going to read this passage, I just want to highlight something here for you that's, that, that's obvious if you have a literal English translation. Because after that imperative word stand, you then have four Greek participles that are followed by, um, and, and, you can, and they're, they're highlighted by the fact that they end in ing. Ing is a clue to you that these are Greek participles. Uh, uh, all pointing back to the command, stand. The participles, you say, well, what's the purpose of a Greek participle? They're showing you what we need to do if we are to stand. How do I stand in this great spiritual warfare that I live in? How do you do that? Well, glad you asked. So let's read the words of the living God from Ephesians 6, starting here in verse 14. Verse 14, it says, Stand... Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth 
And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's only half of the passage on spiritual armor. And this is part one of the Christian's armor. Next week we'll look at the other pieces. So let's look at this armor of God that is actually going to enable us to stand firm, to to, to do what this command is here. Uh, The first part of the armor for the Christian is a belt of truth. Now why would God start with a belt of truth? I mean, is that really armor? (laughs) Some have questioned, that doesn't sound like armor to me. Well, you need a belt of truth because Satan is a liar. In fact, Jesus called him the father of all liars. He is the father of lies. So, why do you need a belt? Well, you have to understand, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this, he has a very vivid illustration sitting right next to him. After all, he's in prison. Paul's in prison, and he's chained to a Roman soldier who looks something like that bald-headed dude. So you'll notice the bald-headed dude, the Roman soldier there, is wearing a belt. Let me explain something to you. A Roman soldier always would wear a tunic. A tunic was just basically an outer garment that served as his primary clothing. It was uh, pretty boring, really. It was just made uh, It was like a large square piece of cloth. And uh, imagine uh, just kind of cutting a hole out for your head, and, and then they just kind of throw it over your head, kind of. It's very simple. Ordinarily, it just draped loosely over much of the soldier's body. And since the greatest part of ancient combat during that time period was basically hand-to-hand combat, uh, a loose tunic was potentially dangerous. It was it could potentially be life-threatening. Imagine that big piece of loose clothing getting in the way, possibly tripping him up. It was a potential hindrance for hand-to-hand combat. And so any wise Roman soldier would typically uh, cinch up that tunic, the loose clothing, and he would tuck it into that heavy leather belt that was there on his loins, and, and he would gird it up, as uh, an old Bible translation says. And so the idea of girding your loins here with truth was this idea if you're, you're getting prepared. Uh, the ESV says you're getting ready for the battle ahead. And so girding your loins was, was a mark of preparedness. And so the soldier who was serious about fighting was definitely going to secure his tunic in his belt. But this is not a leather belt that the Holy Spirit has given to us here. It is the Notice it is the belt of truth. It's the belt of truth. So you say, well, what is truth? <laughs> and, I, and I'm not Pilate. That was the very question Pilate asked of Jesus. And so... Uh, if you come to the very definition of that word truth, it just means it's the content of that which is true. Well, that's its definition. That may not be a real help to you. So content of that which is true. Okay, so where does the content come from? Well, the content, of course, comes from God. 
And the content of God's truth is absolutely essential here for the believer in his or her battle against Satan. How can you fight the father of lies, the great deceiver, the great accuser, without truth? Without knowledge of biblical teaching, my friend, you are actually in great danger of what chapter 4 has already told us. The the danger in chapter 4, verse 14, is that you might be carried away by every wind of doctrine. You might succumb to the trickery of men, it says, or by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. That's your danger. Watch out. And it's interesting, as I was studying this passage, commentators had uh, various ideas on what is the truth mentioned here in this passage. It, It just mentions the word truth, but it doesn't really elaborate on this. So it's a bit tricky, really. Uh, there's at least two ways you can think of truth, two, two, two basic meanings here. Number one, truth can mean the truth of God. You say, well, what's that? Well, I'm glad you asked. It can refer to Christian doctrine. It can re- refer to theology, the, the specific content that we see uh, from, from God and His revelation in the Bible. I certainly think this is part of the truth. And I think the, the second uh, aspect is also true. So I think both aspects of truth here I think are right, since I have no reason to not think that. God doesn't tell me no on this. I'm going with both of these. Uh, the second basic meaning of truth here, since uh, in the original language the word uh, the, the is is not there, the article the. It's not the truth. And so that's not actually there. I think truth can also refer to truthfulness or this idea of a sincerity of heart. And so as the Bible looks at this particular area here, inner truth or truthfulness, if you will, begins with a knowledge of God. He's the source of truth, right? Even Jesus says, I am the truth in John 14. So who is truth? Well, God is. He's a knowledge, and so the, the knowledge of truth comes from God. And, and of course, that inevitably then leads to a changed life uh, consistent with God's own character then. And so we must be truthful people. Why? So why is lying a sin? Because God is truth. See, God is truth. God can't lie, and so... And so lying becomes a sin because that's his own character. You see how that works? All the Ten Commandments are coming out of his own nature and character. And so, therefore, you and I must be truthful people. But we will become that only as then we are coming to his truth that he has revealed to us in the Bible. These are the truths of God. Now, it's very significant, I think, here, the order of the the armor given here. I think it's really significant. The Holy Spirit starts with truth. That's what comes first. I think that suggests that successful spiritual warfare begins with fixing Christianity's great doctrines firmly in our minds. You you understand, that's where the real battle lies, right? The battleground is really in your mind. Uh, uh, You could put it another way. It's dangerous to rush into a battle 
without having the great doctrines of the Christian faith fixed firmly in your understanding. Otherwise, you will be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Too, too many people are like, they're all over the place, right? They, they go on the internet and then they read this. Oh, I believe that. And then they go, they go to the Christian big, the bookstore and then they, they, get, they buy a book and they're like, oh, I believe that. And then they're like, and then even though those things disagree with the Bible, they're like all over the place. They don't have a solid foundation. That's really dangerous. And so we need to hear this, for we have a tendency to think that activity is the important thing, and that convictions of truth don't matter, or at least, you know, they're just kind of secondary importance. You know, what I do is more important than what I believe, right? No. (laughs) Certainly not a good approach in Christianity, anyway. And so, in Christianity, truth comes first... Right? Theology is what's supposed to be driving your methodology. Without truth, without the doctrines, without the knowledge of who God is, who we are, what we, what we become in Christ, what we have been called to do. Ephesians 1 through 3 is what you've been called to do. Who you are in Christ. So without those, we really don't know what kind of activity we're supposed to be doing. Reminds me of a story of uh, Heidi and Daniel Sensei. I was I was talking to him last Sunday, an interesting guy. But but anyway, he he was he was telling me some of his workmates were getting ordered around by his by their boss, and their boss's favorite were, uh, phrase is "Hurry up, hurry up!" He's constantly yelling at these guys, "Hurry up!" And you know what these rookies do? They run around like headless chickens. Hurry up! They so they run over to their truck, and then they're like, why did I do that? They have no idea what, what they're doing, where they're going. They're just aimless. They're doing something because the boss is saying, hurry up. And, and, and you know, since he's trying to say, hey, guys, screw your heads on, think. Okay, if you don't understand what he's yelling you to, to, at you to do, then ask questions. Find out what you're supposed to do. Too many Christians are like headless chickens. By the way, you city slickers, do you know that illustration? Have you ever seen a headless chicken? There, there's a lot of city slickers who don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So if, anyway, if you cut a, you can cut the head off a chicken, and you can actually place it on the ground, and it can run around for a little while. It's very fun. I did it when I was a little kid. What? <laughs> but the, the, the point is, there's too many people like that. You, you need to be in self-control. You need to be engaging the mind. Don't just fill your life with activity and not know what you're supposed to be doing. You need the truth. and Live in that truth. And if you don't do that, then you're going to be vulnerable to Satan's attacks. And so here's my action point for you, friends. Become a theologian. I know. Some people find that scary. Like, like that, that's only for those ivory tower guys who get paid to do research in seminary and sit in the library all day, right? That, that's only for them, isn't it? No. 
every Christian should be a theologian. Otherwise, you are in great danger. This is the first part of the armor. So become a theologian, or you can succumb to Satan's lies. But there's more involved here. As we move on, we see the text tells us the second part of the armor is this breastplate of righteousness. Now, why do you need a breastplate of righteousness? Because Satan is the accuser. He's the great accuser. So let me explain a breastplate to you, since most of us don't use these today. So remember, Paul's chained to one. Well, not not to a breastplate, but he's chained to a Roman soldier who has a breastplate. And so it was typical uh, for a Roman soldier to wear one of these. It was a very tough, sleeveless piece of armor that would cover this soldier's torso. Torso is that main part of your body. Uh, sometimes it would be made of leather or a, a heavy linen. Uh, sometimes they would sew overlapping slices of animal hooves or horns or sometimes pieces of metal. Uh, some were made of large pieces of metal that were actually molded like this guy here has in your picture. And so then they would, they would hammer those to conform to the person's body. And so the purpose of that armor of of course, is then to protect the major organs of the body, right? It's protecting your heart, your lungs, your intestines, and other vital organs which you so desperately need. And of course, in ancient Jewish thinking, the heart wasn't that organ in your body pumping blood. It actually represented the mind and the will and the bowels, and those things were all considered the seat of your emotions and feelings. And so the mind and the emotions are the two areas where Satan loves to attack you. He he wants to take out your emotions and your feelings. He wants you to live on your feelings. Right? He, He wants you to follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful, by the way. That's what the prophet Jeremiah said. So watch out. Uh, he And so, how does Satan do this, you say? Well, Satan does this uh, many ways. He he creates a world system, as 1 John 2 talks about. He's created a sinful environment by which he tempts us to think wrong thoughts. He wants us to feel wrong emotions. He wants to cloud our minds with false doctrine. Uh, he wants us to have false principles and false information. Why does he want that? Because he wants to mislead you. He wants to confuse you. He also wants to confuse our emotions and thereby pervert our affections and even our morals. And so that's why you need a breastplate. That's what the breastplate is. But notice it's not, uh, this is not some molded piece of metal that you need to put on. This is actually, according to God, it's called righteousness. So what kind of righteousness is there? Well, there's at least three kinds of types of righteousness mentioned in the Bible. Clearly it's not self-righteousness because uh, that's soul damning and that is not armor. Too many people put on their self-righteousness like the Pharisees and they are open to Satan's attacks. So certainly it can't be that. So what is this talking about here? Well, self-righteousness has got to be one of the the worst forms of sin. 
in fact. It is with that sort of righteousness that some Christians clothe themselves and they think that they're protected and they think their own character and their legalistic behavior and their own accomplishments are somehow going to please God and and I'm going to jump on the performance treadmill and God's going to smile on me and uh, He's going to bring me rewards. But far from protecting you, you're actually you're, you're putting on a cloak of self-righteousness that actually gives Satan the open door to attack you. You're giving him a weapon. You're actually putting a weapon in Satan's hands to attack you with. He wants to stifle you and to smother your spiritual life. He doesn't want you to worship God. And so if, if you think self-righteousness is your protection, well then you're actually worshiping yourself. And so, there's other ways righteousness can be taken. So let's think about this. It can refer to what theology has called imputed righteousness. This is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, where He reckons a a, a sinner to be declared right with God. That's imputed righteousness. This is where He enables you to stand before God and that only happens because Christ gives you His righteousness. But this righteousness can also refer to specific acts of righteousness, where you do right. Uh, you might call it personal holiness, or personal godliness, as we might call it. And I love the third chapter of Zechariah, which we read earlier, where you have that glorious scene there in which Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord right there in the temple. By the way, the angel of the Lord is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. And did you notice when we read Zechariah chapter 3, who else is there? Satan, the great accuser, is there. And he's accusing Joshua, the high priest. This is one of Satan's schemes. He loves to accuse people. And since we're told that Joshua is dressed in filthy clothing, which, by the way, represents his as well as Israel's sin, Satan must have been pointing to those things there, and he's forcefully declaring that Joshua is not fit to stand before the Lord right there and take on his priestly office. Is Satan right? Is he correct? In one sense, he is. It is a clear case of spiritual warfare going on. But the angel of God, of course, intervenes. And the angel says, take off his filthy clothing. Guys, it sounds like your mother or your wife, doesn't it? For some of us, this happens. My mother used to tell me all the time, were you born in a barn? The answer was no, in case you're wondering. I was born in a hospital, but... But you understand the point. Take off those filthy clothing. Take off the overalls. Put on some clean clothing. And so that's what the angel does. He gives him this new rich garment. He gives him a a clean turban for his head. And of course, there's great symbolism involved in this. Clearly, that symbolism is the righteousness of Christ imputed to Joshua the priest. And so the clothes were not just something Joshua acquired for himself, But notice 
It's something that was given to him. He, he couldn't take them. He couldn't go and buy them. There's nothing he could do to get them. Those clo- the clean clothes had to be given to him and put on him. And so Joshua acquired those things. They were something that was given to him, and it is the righteousness alone that enabled them him, in this case, then to resist Satan's vile accusations. It reminds me of one of our great hymns written by Count Zinzendorf. Don't you love that name? But anyway, Count Zinzendorf certainly had this concept in mind. And so when you sing this song, you need to think about the imputed righteousness of Christ, which he wrote into his hymn when he said, he said this, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. And he goes on, maybe I'll try to sing it for you. My beauty are my glorious dress, Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, With joy shall I lift up my head, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am From sin and fear, from guilt and shame. So that's what he was talking about, this imputed righteousness that is given to a believer, which you can't earn. But on the other hand, one of the things I love about Zechariah 3 is, is it goes on to show us practical righteousness. See, the practical righteousness, or you might call it personal holiness, comes out of the imputed righteousness. You you can't please God. You can't do right without being right. And so it's very significant that immediately after Joshua the high priest is is given these rich robes, given the, the clean turban, symbolizing God's righteousness, then then the angel gave Joshua a charge to be holy. Here's what the angel says. Zechariah 3, verse 7, it says, If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. You see how that works? Here's how it doesn't work. See, if you're a self-righteous Pharisee, you immediately jump to verse 7, and you leave out the imputed righteousness of Christ. And you try to do verse 7 in your own strength. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to walk in my ways, and I'm going I'm to keep God's requirements so that God's going to bless me. You see how that works? Even Christians try to do this but they've left off the first six verses. (laughs) It doesn't work without the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so, imputed righteousness is not to be divorced from actual right living or righteousness. It's because he had been given that righteousness that Joshua is now to live rightly. And so, if I had to choose between the, the, the three kinds of righteousness I've mentioned, either 
self-righteousness or imputed righteousness or actual righteousness, I would go with the last one. I, I would go with actual righteousness or personal holiness here. I think that's predominantly what the context is referring to here. It's in this context that Paul is urging those who who are, by the way, they're already Christians. <laughs> he's writing to the church here. So as he writes to the church, uh, he's, he's, he's urging them, put on God's armor. And if they're Christians, then they have already been clothed with God's imputed righteousness in that first sense. And therefore, the only thing they can put on then is the last one, which is this practical righteousness, this actual holiness that's expressed in right thoughts and right deeds. You say, why is this important? A lot of us like to know, what's the point? You say, what's the point? Why do I need this? What effect will this have on me if I don't have this armor? Glad you asked. Well, number one, not to be armored here with practical righteousness is actually going to cost you joy. Lack of obedience brings lack of joy. And so only the joyful Christian is the one who is an obedient Christian. Number two, failure to be armed with this practical righteousness here is going to cause fruitlessness in your life. The disobedient Christian is one who is unproductive. Might be busy, a lot of light, no heat. And number three, unholy living is going to, of course, bring a loss of reward to you. Whatever we do in our flesh, in our sin nature, will never amount to anything that's actually worthy of heavenly praise. And then number four, unholy living is going to bring the reproach of God's glory. It's not going to glorify God. So those are just four important effects that uh, lack of practical righteousness will have on us. All right, there's one more that we're going to look at here. Uh, The third part of the armor is, is a bit confusing for some people. It is the shoes of the gospel. Why do I need shoes or uh, a, a warrior's boots, if you will? Well, it's because Satan is a warrior. Satan is a warrior. You need to be prepared to fight. Because verse 15 tells us that these there's some shoes here for your feet and having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So how do I stand firm? Well, you, you stand firm by putting on these shoes. Well, Roman shoes are a little different from what we typically wear today, so let me just show you a picture there. Uh, One commentator said this, that the Roman legionaries wore heavy sandals with soles made of several layers of leather leather averaging about two centimeters thick, studded with hollow-headed hobnails, and they were tied by leather thongs halfway up the shin, and then they were stuffed with wool or or, or fur, during cold weather. So that's what they wore. So a a soldier's shoes are very important because his very life could actually depend on those shoes. Think about it. Have any of you ever worn boots or shoes that cause you to get blisters, cause your feet to get sore, or may have even done permanent damage to your feet? Uh, maybe you got your, your feet cut, or uh, maybe they were swollen or whatever, and uh, 
you couldn't walk, you couldn't work. Uh, it can create problems sometimes if we don't have the right footwear and we're not using that footwear properly. And so uh, imagine a soldier. His whole life depends on the right armor and using it all properly. If he couldn't fight well, often he wasn't able to stand up and that created a perilous situation in battle. He cannot very well handle a sword. You can't handle your shield. You, you can't do what you need to do if the very bottom of the body is not working properly. And, that, and that's the idea here. So in spiritual warfare, it's vital for a believer to be wearing the right kind of footwear. And if you're not, you're destined to fail. So we need to ask ourselves here, what then is this vital piece of armor? What is the gospel of peace? Glad you asked. Well, here's where probably one of my favorite books in the Bible is very helpful. The book of Romans informs us here, and I'll put the verses on the screen here for you. But uh, believers are to put on these shoes, and it's to happen at the moment of salvation. Because Romans chapter 5, verse 1, after going through the first three chapters showing us that the entire world is guilty, we're all standing guilty because of our own sin, that you finally get to chapter 5, verse 1, and it says this, Having been justified by faith, look what you get. What do you get? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's awesome news. So my question for you, friends, is have you embraced the gospel? Are you actually believing this good news? You need to believe this good news because this is what's going to enable you to stand firm in battle. And if you have the good news of peace, God says then you are protected and you're going to be able to stand your ground against the devil when he comes against you, you will be able to stand firm. You don't need to slip. You don't need to slide. You don't need to fall down when you are under attack by Satan because he, God has given you this gospel of peace. And so the gospel is effective against Satan's attacks. Put it on. Keep it on. This is a continuous thing, by the way. You're to continually keep this armor on. And you say, well, why do I need the gospel? That's, I mean, that sounds good, this gospel of peace, but why do I need it? Well, that's because unbelievers are at war with God. Let's just start there. Unbelievers are at war with God. And so before salvation, everyone is an enemy of God. The Bible says, uh, read Ephesians chapter 2, uh, you are an object of God's wrath and judgment. You understand that, my friends? You're at war with God. You're His enemy. And so you need to be saved from God. Where's that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Because that's the authority, right? Romans 5, verse 8. Look at this. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by Him from Satan. Right? No, that's not what it says. Who are you saved from? 
you are saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the issue here is that God is at war with mankind. Not good. Because God always wins. (laughs) You can't defeat God. You have no hope of defeating God. That creates a problem for us then, doesn't it? Because look what Romans 1 verse 18 says. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And you say, okay, that, oh, that's bad news. So why is God at war? Because God is the enemy of sin. God is, is the enemy of sin's father, who of course is Satan. And so if you're not on God's side then, guess what? What did Jesus say? In John, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Satan's my father? Yeah. If you're an unbeliever. That's not good. Because look at this. Here's another great prophet. Look what he says. Nahum 1, verse 2, says that Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, we're all guilty. What hope do I have? Glad you asked that too. So here, here's look at this, friends. Anybody who's an enemy of God will know and feel his punishment. And the war here, friends, is so intense that God will someday cast the unbeliever into the lake of fire and you will burn for all eternity. That is your destiny if you are an unbeliever. So you need to be reconciled. You need to be made at one with this one who is your enemy. That's your only hope. You say, well, where's the peace? part of this picture here glad you asked that question the good news is this my friend is that god has made peace with you how did he do that by justifying those whom he called to salvation so again let me remind you romans 5 1 how does the peace come well that's the beginning of the verse having been justified how not your good works how are you justified? How, how do you get this right standing with God? It's through faith in Christ alone. Then comes peace with God. And that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, another question to ask here, number five, is what does this peace refer to? This is a vital piece of armor. We need to understand this piece. And so you need to understand, this peace is not referring to your feelings. This peace is referring to a relationship. Peace with God means we're not on opposite sides anymore. God is no longer your enemy. Oh, that's good news. And so the wrath of God has been removed. And so our war with Him is over. And then God declares peace. 
by reconciling us together. Wow, that's great news. So number six then, how did God reconcile us to himself? I love this fact, but how does it actually happen? I'm glad you asked, because again, the answer is Romans 5. It is through the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So if your faith is in anything other than Christ and his finished work and continuing ministry on your behalf, then you are not at peace with God. Because look what it says here. Again, Romans 5 eight, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, I did put it up there, didn't I? Anyway, here's what Christ did. He died for us, the believers. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? How are you reconciled to God? How does, how does the war end and you become friends? It's by the death of His Son. And so much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And so my friend, oh, this is amazing. God poured out His vengeance, His anger, and, and, and wrath, not on you, you deserve it. But guess who gets it? Jesus. When Jesus dies on the cross, God pours His wrath on Jesus. And so Jesus takes your place. And He makes the full payment for your sin. And then... God's anger is appeased. That's how it works. And then as a result of this, you get this new status. And you get this peace with God. And so be Christ bore all of our sins, then we are forever holy and faultless in His sight, even though we're still sinners at the moment. Wow, that's interesting theology. But it's true. I know some of you, I know, I, I know how some of you think, because I think the same way you do. Some of you, even at this moment, are thinking, well, I still sin. How does that work? <laughs> I'm still a sinner, so what if I get this right standing with God, so what happens if I go home and I sin? Then what? Well, the good news is, friend, God maintains the peace for you. You don't have to. In fact, you can't. It's not possible for you to maintain it. God does it for you. So, here's my next question. How does God maintain the peace? How does He do that? Does God have big enough shoulders to do this? Do you think God's strong enough and able to do this for you? Here's where theology is so important. I mean, if you've got a weak, puny God, He's not able to do that. But my God's big enough, strong enough to do this. So how does He do this? Well, it's through Christ who became our high priest. He cleanses us from all sin, it says, and then He maintains our relationship with Him through His past act, which He accomplished on the cross. And guess what? Jesus' ministry is not finished for you. That's also good news. Did you know that Jesus' ministry continues on? Even today, His ministry continues on your behalf. He is at work in heaven. He's not sitting on his hands doing nothing, twiddling his thumbs. In fact, may I remind you again, Romans 5, verse 10 says this, 
For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So guess what? If Jesus is still in the grave, you're not saved. And you're headed to hell. That's how important the resurrection is. That's how important your great high priest is. So please follow the argument here, friends. Since a dying Savior succeeded in bringing us to God and making us friends and reconciling us, guess what? Here's the argument in verse 10. That you have a living Savior who can certainly keep us in this position, in this status. And that's good news. Last question. Okay, I'm hearing a lot of good news here, but uh, how long is this going to (laughs) last? Right? Uh, Is there some fine print here that I haven't read yet? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's like insurance companies. They're always trying to weasel their way out of paying you money, right? This sounds too good to be true. I know, yeah, some of you are thinking this. Well, here's God's answer. How long will God maintain this relationship of peace? Oh, Hebrews is so awesome, isn't it? Chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by a single offering, He, Jesus, has perfected or completed for all time those who are being sanctified. So how long does it last? According to Hebrews? Forever. Forever. And so my friends, here's the good news. You can't take yourself out of God's peace. If you save yourself, then yeah, you can be unsaved at any point, right? If that was even possible. But if God saves you and He keeps you, there's nothing you can do to take yourself out of His care and protection. Read Romans 8, please. Read the end of Romans 8. Such good news. If you don't believe that, read the end of Romans 8. Because there is nothing that can take you from Christ's love. And so I ask you, my friends, we, we come to the end of this first part here. You have some armor that's been given to you. The question is, have you put it on? It's not going to do you any good if it sits in your closet, right? How many of us have stuff that's been given to us that sits in the closet? And you're like, great. Or in the garage or wherever, right? It doesn't do you any good if you're not wearing it. Some of you are laughing because you're like me. You do the same thing, I know. And so if you have this armor and at some point you've put it on, the question is, are you using it? And are you keeping it on? Are you resolved to keep it on? You need to be resolved. Because we're not on the playground. We're on the battleground. And armor is not comfortable. At least it wasn't for the Roman soldier. Most of the time they wouldn't sleep in that stuff. (laughs) So they would take it off because it's much more comfortable. So, I urge you, put on the armor and leave it on so that you can stand firm in spiritual warfare. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the spiritual armor and enabling us to stand firm. We don't have to succumb to Satan and his cronies and all the schemes and the attacks that we're getting. You've given us great hope. Thank you for that. May we live in the light of these glorious truths. 
May we understand the truth and this righteousness and this gospel you've given to us. May we use this armor wisely, carefully, so that we would glorify you by standing firm and not worshiping Satan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.